So the concept that the Megillah is discussing in significant detail today is that the Megillah says in chapter one that Ahasuerus was the ruler from Hodu until Kush. And really this is also in the tractate of Megillah in the Talmud that the rabbis asked the following question. Hodu and Kush were kind of next door to each other. It's like saying he reigned from, you know, mid-beach to North Beach. You know, like that's not saying much. So that, that's the, the Talmud's question. What, what kind of a uh, statement of power is it that, um, that he, uh, you know, he reigned from these, in these two countries, which were right next to each other? especially in light of the fact that it says he reigned over 127 countries, right? You have that as an explicit sentence and you're saying he reigned over 127 countries and, you know, that would be like the United States and Canada, no offense, but it doesn't have an army. Okay, so similarly, we have a concept that, um, that we have from King Solomon and the Mashiach, which is what the, the Midrash is about to say, that by King Solomon and by the Mashiach as well, it talks about how King Solomon reigned from you know one country to the next, and in this case, it was from Tifsach until Azza, which is kind of like from Jerusalem until the Gaza Strip. You know, like well, what's what's the big deal? And by Mashiach, in a similar fashion, the the um, the, the the sentence says that the kings are going to go from your from Hashem's sanctuary to the Mashiach. So you're going to have kings visiting the base of Mikdash, the sanctuary of Hashem, and they're going to go all the way from the temple, you know, to Rechavia. I'm not, I'm not saying Mashiach will be in Rechavia, but you never know, right? So the point is that these are not great distances, and so what's it saying? So the, the Midrash answers that the idea of rulership is not so much the expression of the physical distance from place to place, but it's the actual impact or control that the ruler, the monarch, has over the territories. And very often, uh, let's think of a really, you know, common practical example, the British Empire. When the Brit British Empire in its heyday, you know, it had countries under its rulership all across the globe, it wasn't exactly iron-fisted, you know, tight control, impact, you know, to the nth degree in every country. Some countries were more influenced, some countries were less influenced, but it wasn't really a strong kind of a control or a hold over those countries. But in these cases, the Ahasuerus reign and the reign of King Shlomo, when he ruled over the countries of the globe, meaning either of these monarchs ruled over the countries of the globe, they ruled over them in a very powerful way that they were really asserting control and influence. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that control and influence in a minute, but first to finish the Midrash, in the case of Mashiach, where we're talking about that in the future, kings from all over the world, they're going to come to Yerushalayim and they're going to have an emphasis because they want to visit the sanctuary. And once they're there, they're also going to bring gifts all the way to the Mashiach, right? The idea is that it's going to be so commonplace that there will be gifts given to the Mashiach that everybody's going to know, hey, you know what that traffic is we see outside? That's everybody bringing gifts to the Mashiach. And, you know, they've given up on Art Basel, apparently. And now they're going to the Mashiach, right? It's going to be 
like that kind of a mentality where you know all these people are gathering, you know exactly why they're there. And the idea is that it's so ubiquitous, it's so prevalent that it is very saturated. And so just like the, these rulerships are saturating the countries of their, of their dynasty, of their empire, um, in the case of Ahasuerus, in the case of Shlomo HaMelech, so too in the times of Mashiach, his impact and his recognition is going to be so embedded and so you know, complete within all the countries of the world that it's going to be obvious there's always going to be gifts on the street heading towards the Mashiach because people are going to recognize him. Now, there's definitely more to be said on this, but one thing I just want to you know, think about is that it's kind of incredible to think about that kind of a monarchy. I mean, do we really think that in the times of King Shlomo, right, somewhere, whether it's Ethiopia, which really could have been the Queen of Sheba possibly, or, you know, other countries, Turkey and other countries, you know, that we know about, do we really think that his, his rulership was so complete that everybody thought of him as the king and everybody thought of him and his rules and his taxes and that was it? So my suggestion is no, I, I don't know this, but it's just a suggestion. I kind of think of this rulership that the Midrash and the Gemara are talking about, similar to the rulership of the United States of America. Their impact is very, very, very greatly felt. What's happening in the New York Stock Exchange affects the entire globe. Uh, the policies that are decided in the White House or by the Fed, are, those effects are felt by the entire globe. Right? There's a tremendous impact, you know, and depending on the government of the United States, we know, you know how countries either are emboldened or abashed to take action. Right? We, we know that. So that's what I would suggest is a similar kind of a concept that we're talking about the rulership either of Shlomo HaMelech or of Ahasuerus. Because the reality is, even the Megillah talks about all the various leaders and heads of state that visited Ahasuerus when he made the party. So it means that you have a tremendous amount of governance happening outside of the capital of Shushan. And so unless you say that every one of those was a direct governor, you know, like we had in England, you had the dukes and you had the counts and you had all the different, you know, uh, uh, levels of the English fiefdom, you know, unless you think that it was exactly like that with a, uh, what do you, like a company flow chart, you know, everybody, you know, at the level underneath, ultimately the king, you know, which is just hard to believe that kind of power that Ahasuerus would have over 127 countries, you know, I'm suggesting an alternative. Um, plus, you know, I do think that they pay taxation. Uh, a lot of people in the world think that they do pay America taxation, whether it's in directly or indirectly, you know, or it's directly because they have assets, you know, that America watches or indirectly because they're affected by what happens in this country. So that's my suggestion for that. Any questions or comments? Does that, um, and I, it might be getting ahead of things, but does that tie into the part of the Megillah where he sent the scouts out to get the, the most beautiful of the women? Would, yeah, would, he, would he have gone? Would he have gone beyond his, let's say, beyond his territory into other kingdoms because of it? Is that is that part of the the suggestion there? Yes, I, I think it is. 
Um, in other words, he was really able to pull from all the countries of the world, you know, which I'm not really sure is any different than um, holding a beauty contest in the United States of America and getting, you know, everybody wants to be part of that, you know. Ironically, I think the last person to own the Miss Universe contest uh, resides in Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that trivia. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> um, okay. Now so, it's up by a transsexual from India, by the way. Oh, re really? Yes. Wow. Okay, so now we are going to page 18.1. And in my mind, page 18.1 brings up a whole you know, philosophic discussion we'll have a little bit. Um, it's actually a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, uh, some of it, but uh, here we go. So basically the Midrash really goes into a, um, you know, a lot of things that we're not getting into, like, is it how many countries were in the world? Was it all the countries in the world? Is it half the countries in the world? There are many, many other interesting things that we're not, you know, diving into. But one of the points that are mentioned along the way in this general discussion of understanding Akashverosh and some of the history of the other kings of that time, the Midrash talks about that Cyrus, otherwise known as Koresh, um, was punished with the loss of half of his kingdom. And he was nonetheless rewarded for some good deeds, even though he had, um, uh, you know, tried to limit the extent of Hashem's kingdom uh, or, or the size of the temple. So the point is that even though he was a wicked man, he was nonetheless rewarded for good deeds that he had. Um, so really the expression should be no good deed done by a wicked person goes unrewarded instead of no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> it's a totally different uh, concept. Okay, so now the Talmud brings a very interesting statement. And one of the, uh, I, I'm sorry, I meant the Midrash. One of the great things about the rabbis is that they really knew their, their Bible, all books of it. Over here, we're talking about the book of Daniel. And the sentence from Daniel that is being quoted says that Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachman said that it's written about God, that God's garment, meaning his clothing, so to speak, was white as snow and the hair of God's head like clean wool. Amar Nake is uh, sort of Aramaic because uh, um, the book of Daniel is written largely in Aramaic because he was living in Babylonia at the time. And this expression is clean wool, is referring to the, 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 like the hair of Hashem's head, like the locks of his head. And so what does that mean? So the Midrash explains, it means that no creature has any claim on God. It means to say that everything that God does is just, every punishment is just, to the extent that he doesn't withhold a good deed and reward it even to a wicked person. That's how just clean haired white garment is God's justice. That makes sense so far? Okay, so the Midrash goes on to say several examples of the fact that God makes sure that all the nations of the world get 
rewarded, recompense for the good deeds that they have. And then even if their good deeds are, you know, self-serving, uh, you know, whatever, you know, their, their intentions were in doing those good things, God still rewards them. But after that, they get, as they say in Yiddish, azets, right? They get, they get punished. They get, what, they get clobbered for their wickedness. And um, there's a sentence in Zechariah which says that it shall be on that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that came upon Jerusalem. And the expression I will seek to destroy all the nations seems inept because what does it mean that God needs to seek to destroy them? God destroys them, right? What does it mean God is like, is on a quest to destroy them? And so one of the interpretations here is that God reviews the chronicles of all the good deeds. He pays them so that then he can punish them. That's what it means. He's seeking the punishment by first paying them what they deserve in terms of goodness. Okay, and so there, like I mentioned, there are several examples like that. So I had recently an argument that this is, you know, the reason I wanted to discuss this midrash. And it seems very... Um, problematic to me, although apparently there are some rabbis that claim this. I, I'm not going to mention their names because I'm really against this idea, but if you come across it in any of the books, you'll know that we, we talked about it. There are some rabbis that claim that when a wicked person does a good deed, they get rewarded, doesn't only refer to when they're doing good things. It even refers, for example, when they threaten Jews or they hurt Jews, and that causes the Jews to repent that's a good deed. And they get rewarded for that. I'm extremely against that idea. But, you know, in the Talmud, you know, specifically related to the Purim story, the Talmud says specifically that the power of Ahasuerus removing his ring of assignation of power, right, his, room, his ring of stamping decrees, the power of Ahasuerus removing his ring and giving it to Haman, the anti-Semite, even though Ahasuerus was no friend either, was more beneficial to the Jews than all the prophets and prophetesses that came and rebuked and warned and, you know, cajoled and begged and pleaded and, you know, exhorted that we had. Why? Because when the ring was removed and suddenly we're in Ahmadinejad's or God forbid, you know, the equivalent control. Okay, well, now it's time to repent. Okay, that's, that's like the Jewish response. Uh -oh, uh oh, better, better, better get serious about my teshuva now, right? Better go to the oven, better, you know, repay the, the money that I stole or blah, 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 right? So that's what the Talmud says, that it was more powerful, the removal of the ring. Now, it just, um, I'm, I'm not going to understate it. It makes me nauseous to think that, you know, while Haman is signing the decree, he's earning reward of any kind. I just, I, I don't buy that. And I don't think that this is what the passage over here means. I think that when we think, I heard a great, a great term today, it's called the benevolent narcissist. Right? Some people on this call might be familiar with that term. Right? So when a, when a wicked person is benevolent. He might be benevolent because, hey, he wants accolades. He wants to see himself as a person of, of uh, you know, of substance. 
while he's controlling everybody around him with the money that he's giving them or whatever the context is of the benevolent narcissist. Okay, I could understand he's also doing something good. I, I could get that he's rewarded for that, even though in many ways it's at a very low level of righteous intention. But to say that by you know threatening to kill people, which causes them you know indirectly to repent, which is zero intention. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to bring them any good in any sense of the word. That that a wicked person would get rewarded for that. I simply don't buy that. So I, I, I just wanted to make that point clearly. I think I did. Any questions or comments? Yes, Joseph, please. Uh, this brings me um, the, in mind one of your previous shoes, where you said like, from any bad, bad uh, situation or bad circumstances, something good comes. You, you had it repeated in a different shoes. So if you buy this from something bad, some, something good comes, why taking the ring out being bad, something good comes from it too. I'm just trying to argue with you to, to go deeper to, to this issue. Meaning why do I think Haman doesn't get rewarded for that? No, that's no, no. That's from something so bad. No, I'm not talking about reward. Something so bad, something good came out. So you're yeah. asking, how could it be that from something so bad, something good comes out? Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's a fair question. Let me ask you just for a moment before we directly answer that question. How about from the fact of something good, many bad things happen? It's called wealth and entitlement. Mm. Right. What about that? You know, the, the blessing of affluence is, in many ways, the curse of today's generation, in many right. ways, right. right? So we can ask that question, too. How could it be that's from something so good that God wants for us, something so bad is happening, right? And unfortunately, the answer to both questions is the same. It's because we have free choice, and unfortunately, we very often don't make good choices unless, you know, we're up against the wall. And we don't make bad choices when we're up against the wall. And we make bad choices when we're not up against the wall. It's, it's yeah. an unfortunate uh, you know, factor of human behavior. Is it the way that it should be? Absolutely not. But unfortunately, the only way, and you know, this is the drum that we always beat, the only way to possibly prevent that from happening, my very humble thing is education. And I don't mean education, Torah education. And I don't mean education, just information, but education as to sensitize a person to what it means to be an elevated human being. And that there's many more meaningful things to accomplish in the world than zeros in the bank, you know, um, or bragging rights to the car or whatever. You know, there's just a lot more important things in the world. I really think that that takes education. And most importantly, the education of that I feel better as a person when I make those choices than when I make other choices. Yeah, that makes sense. I wish I knew an, you know, an easier answer. Well, this is something that repeats in my mind since last year, so I meant to, to ask you. Okay, sounds good. Right, but God gives us the opportunity. He gives us good things, and you know, he, he hopes that we, we choose well. But you know, the the 
the curse of complacency is really what we read about on Tisha B'Av morning in the Torah. It says when you will father children and grandchildren and you will become old in the land, I translate that, and you will become complacent in the land and you will become destructive and you will destroy and God will punish you. You know, it, it happens like that. Some complacency. Yes. Rabbi, when, when other scholars are making the, the uh, argument that Haman was rewarded for doing the bad things, what are they saying are his rewards? You know, I, I haven't heard. I mean, it, it would seem by all accounts that they're temporary because, you know, even when they're less bad than that kind of bad, they seem to be temporary, which is what the Midrash is telling us here. There's a certain recompense. Okay, now it's time for major destruction. As opposed to righteous people, they get temporary punishment and permanent reward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's temporary. You know, I'm... I'm I'm just trying to logic through it and, and figure out what would be what would be that reward, number one. And you know, it, ultimately the reward is is an incentive. It's it's encouraging further behavior. But yeah. ultimately he he has you know, he 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 completely falls from power and and is ex, you know, he, he suffers the worst of it. So he doesn't have the longer term reward, but the shorter term reward also doesn't seem all that clear either. So I, I guess yeah. it's a long way of saying I agree with you, but I'm trying to find the counter argument. Yeah, so, so I'm gonna share with you something about in general counter argument in a minute. Just wanna finish this piece and then we'll press stop and then do our, our, do our Torah. But um, one of the things I wanted to point out is that on page uh, 18.2, it talks about the idea that there are certain mitzvot, certain commandments that the non-Jewish world does as a matter of habit, rather than as a matter of, let's just call it bowing to the truth or you know, intention of, of serving Hashem. Uh, it's just as a matter of habit. So what are these um, mitzvot? Well, you'll be a little surprised and, and it's scary. One of them is that they have, uh, even though it, it specifically said, this is a, from Tractate Chulin, 92 AB, it's in the notes here on page 18.2. It says that even though we're talking about non-Jewish people that have failed to fulfill most of their other obligations, they do not write a marriage contract for males, just as a matter of habit. They do not weigh the flesh of a human corpse in the marketplace, meaning degrading you know, human beings, even though you know, in many, let's just call it lesser um, advanced circles of non-Jews, we could understand that kind of behavior. And somehow they honor the Torah. I didn't see an explanation of what it means to honor the Torah, but I think in general, there is a feeling that the, the Bible is significant. I think that is a general concept, whether it's the Bible that, you know, they used to put in every motel room or, uh, you know, people once told me, well, you are the people of the book. You know, there's a, there's a certain um, respect that they seem to have. But the point is when they get rewarded for those things, okay, now, now it's time to take them to task. 